0: The word of the Lord comes to us today from the prophet Jonah, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out. And went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, about three days' walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on the sackcloth of repentance. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity he had said he would bring on them. And he did not do it. Now this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. Word of the Lord. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the lectionary's texts for this week is about the one person in the Bible who might actually deserve the title, Worst Prophet Ever. I say that because it's a title I've been afraid that some may have ascribed to me after a sermon I preached in December when I talked about the very sensitive topic of race as it related to Mary's Magnificat. Ever since then, I've been forced to really wrestle with the question of what prophetic and relevant preaching means in a church who values political and theological diversity. Actually, one of the reasons Riverside appealed to me was its claim to be a purple church, a church where Republicans and Democrats might share the same pew, a church where two people who disagreed about how best to understand Jesus' death on the cross wouldn't accuse each other of narrow-mindedness or abandoning scripture, but would instead co-teach a class together on the atonement. Now that is a witness to the reconciling gospel of Jesus Christ that this country needs, I thought. That is a church that I would like to be a part of. That's a church that's very similar to the church I grew up in. So it really bothered me to learn that some people, people I care about, people I really want to get to know better and be in community with, people who I think have a lot to teach me and a lot to contribute to any church, were angered or hurt by my preaching a few weeks ago. One reason it bothered me is because I always ask myself two questions about the text. Now, granted, the first is always, what is challenging about this text? That is where I start, partly because that's where the energy is for me. I'm what the Enneagram personality test calls a reformer. I'm always looking for how to improve myself, my community, the system. You might say I have an editor's instincts. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But that's not the only reason that I start by asking what is difficult about this word. My first memorable encounter with the living presence of Jesus was one where I felt challenged to think differently about a social issue. So in a sense, that is my Mount Horeb. That's my Mount Sinai, the place I go first often when I'm looking to encounter God in the text. But the other place I always go where I try to end up in every sermon is by answering this question. What is the good news in this text for me and for anyone who might be listening? Because if there's no good news in my sermon, I'm probably not preaching the gospel. So if I hear that someone didn't hear any good news in one of my sermons, then something went wrong maybe with the preaching, maybe with the listening, maybe with the relationship itself, maybe with something that's much bigger than any two people. But something went wrong. And so I couldn't avoid given a text like this, Jonah's prophetic ministry. I couldn't avoid wondering if the problem indeed was with the preacher. Because let's face it, Jonah really is the worst prophet ever. God gives him clear mission in Nineveh, and he boards a ship in the opposite direction. His spiritual life pales in comparison to that of the multi-faith group of sailors who are not Jewish. Only when God refuses to grant him his death wish and puts him in a three-day timeout in the belly of a whale... Does he call upon the Lord? And even then, it's not really clear whether the fish vomits Jonah onto the beach out of disgust or because God is hopeful that Jonah might finally have gotten it. The last line of Jonah's prayer is indeed, deliverance belongs to the Lord. But the one before that is a really self-righteous thing about idol worshipers. When Jonah finally does preach the message he's been given, it might just be the worst message ever. It's not even a sermon. It's a death sentence. Or is it? I've always thought it strange that God would give Jonah such a dark, hopeless message to relay to the Ninevites. Where is the good news in this message of impending doom? Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. I've wondered if that was indeed the message God gave Jonah, or if Jonah maybe like tweaked it a little bit. Now, to be fair, it's not that difficult to understand why Jonah might be reluctant to have anything to do with the Ninevites and why, if his hand were forced, he might preach a pretty negative sermon. After all, the Assyrians, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE, and captured and deported much of the ten tribes of Israel, and laid siege to the capital city of Samaria for three years. If you want to get a sense of how a lot of Israelites felt about Nineveh and about the Assyrians. Take a look at the book of Nahum. So I'll just give you a little taste. The, the prophet Nahum opens his prophecy about Nineveh like this. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and rages against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. For Nahum and the people still bearing ancestral memories of invasion and exile and siege, they see the salvation of Israel as bound up in the overthrow of the Assyrian Empire. No gracious and merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God hear. The prophet's final words to Assyria are chilling. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For who has ever escaped Your endless cruelty. You can hear the pain that's behind this sermon of judgment. Now, compared to this, Jonah's five words, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown, actually sound quite restrained. Add add to that the fact that the Hebrew word for overthrown which usually means destroyed, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, can also mean transformed. For example, when Samuel tells Saul that the Spirit of the Lord will possess him and he will be overturned into a different person, the same Hebrew word can denote judgment or transformation. This double meaning also has resonance when we think about Jonah himself. His overturning in the ocean is also his second chance to obey God. His judgment contains the seeds of his transformation. Now, I don't think that Jonah meant to be preaching a word of hope or transformation to the Ninevites. It's pretty clear to me that Jonah was hoping for judgment only. When God sees the transformation of the people and grants them mercy, Jonah is so mad. And, and God asks him, what right have you to be angry? Jonah said, I have every right. He feels his anger is justified. Another word for that, right, is self-righteous. Now, that's a word that has a little sting in it for me. You see, we talked yesterday at our session retreat about our core values, and we learned that there are core values you aspire to and core values that you demonstrate by your speech and your actions. Now, one of Riverside's non-debated, aspirational, and demonstrated core values is thoughtfulness. You'll see it in your bulletin and the tagline searching thoughtfully. You'll hopefully hear it in the liturgy and preaching, in the music choices, the education offerings, the committee structure, even in the operations manual and the way luncheons are decorated. Now, for me, being thoughtful is really important because one of my core values demonstrated is being right. <laughs> Righteousness is a good word for it. <laughs> I want to do the right thing. I want to do things the right way. I also want to be in right relationship with people. Sometimes I don't always succeed at doing all these things simultaneously. The plus sign of wanting to be right It's thoughtfulness, hard work, excellence, a strong sense of justice. But it has a shadow side, too. So sometimes, for instance, I'm so thoughtful that it takes me a while to react or to feel a certain way about something. I want to make sure that my reaction is justified by the reality of the situation. I want to get all the information first. That drives my husband nuts. Another shadow side is self-righteousness or defensiveness. I mean, it makes sense if you put a lot of time and effort into coming to a particular conclusion or doing something well. Criticism or disagreement can be very threatening. Nobody wants to know they've invested all that time and energy into coming to the wrong conclusion. And I think some of that self-righteous or defensive shadow may have reared its ugly head in my sermon about Mary in December. But Jonah's painful relationship to the Ninevites also made me question whether there was a feeling of hurt or betrayal that might be lurking behind my own need to be prophetic around social issues. This is a difficult one for me, because my own conversion to Christianity happened at the same time that I became aware of a controversial social issue in the church. Literally, I did not believe in Jesus until I heard his voice speak to me as I shook hands with those protesting at the General Assembly in 2000. So for me, my personal relationship with Jesus is tied up with caring about social issues. I have a really hard time separating the two. That being said, as a female pastor, and I got to this conclusion by thinking about who is it that makes me the maddest? Who is it do I have the least compassion for that I find the hardest to forgive? And, and it's, it's, it's the Presbyterian Church of America. It's the, the, the Presbyterian denomination that won't ordain women. And people who leave the, who leave the Presbyterian Church stir all that up for me. Now, obviously, my position on the ordination of women is one I feel very strongly about. And for me, it's not just a political issue. It's a personal issue. My life is tied up in that debate. And I think that colors the way that I view and speak about all social issues that are debated in the church. And probably why I feel called to talk about them in church at all. Because my own vocation was made possible by one of those debates. But all this is to say that if the word you hear me preach to you feels more like judgment than good news, it might just be the sinful side of my personality salting the message. It might be my subconscious trying to protect that part of me that still feels vulnerable. The part of me that knows my own call to ministry is seen by some as a misinterpretation or rejection of Scripture or as an annoying and divisive political issue that is distracting them from what's really important. It might also be my wounded self trying to protect itself by fleeing like Jonah did to the other side of the world. After all, what could be more scary or painful than preaching about a triumphant and pregnant Mary when you're in the midst of fertility treatments after two miscarriages. Maybe for me, saying Black Lives Matter was also like going to Tarshish. So maybe I should cut Jonah some slack. Maybe he was just letting his shadow side get the best of him. Or was just scared of facing his pain or was trying to compensate for his own feelings of vulnerability. Maybe he isn't the worst prophet ever, but just a human one. Now the good news, you've been waiting for it, right? (laughs) The good news in this text is that God was able to use Jonah anyway for God's own purposes of salvation. Another piece of good news is that the parable ends with the irony that Even though the Ninevites, the enemies of Israel, the wicked, the violent Ninevites, have already been reconciled to God, God is still working on Jonah. When the example of the good sailors doesn't work, God sends a whale. When time out in the whale doesn't work, God sends Jonah to spend three days in the belly of Nineveh. When the inspiring repentance of the Ninevites doesn't work, God sends a bush and a worm to try to make Jonah see his own self-absorption. We end amazed that Jonah can't see how much God's compassion for Jonah's enemies benefits Jonah. The good news is that even when we give up on each other, God does not give up on any of us. Another thing that I love about this story, besides its humor, is that everybody needs everybody else in this story. The Ninevites need Jonah to put the fire under their feet, to get them right with God. And Jonah needs the Ninevites to help him understand something essential about who God is, and perhaps to heal from his old wounds. Now, there are a lot of things that Christians disagree about, and most of these things are really important to a lot of people. Controversial topics and social issues touch deep fears and deep wounds in lots of people on every side of every issue. And it doesn't mean that there are no right answers to some of these debates. But until we agree, we all agree on what those answers are, we should probably keep talking about them. But I hope that we can agree on one thing in the midst of our disagreements, that deliverance is the Lord's, and that even in God's judgment of right and wrong, salvation and reconciliation is always the goal. That word that Jonah uttered in the belly of the whale, deliverance, That's the word that Jesus' name comes from, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Jonah thought he knew a lot, and he did know. He knew that judgment was the Lord's, and he wasn't wrong about that. There's a reason, I think, that Nahum stayed part of the canon. But justice isn't God's only core value. Mercy is right up there with it, and faithfulness, too, that humble and persistent presence that is the core of enduring relationships. We talked about this today in the confirmation class when we talked about what it means to have a mission heart. So, my hope for Riverside, for all of us, is that we can live out all of those core values in our life together the justice that seeks truth and fairness and right action, the mercy that shows kindness, forgiveness, compassion, that gives each other the benefit of the doubt. And the faithfulness, maybe that's the most important at all, the faithfulness that shows up to walk humbly beside, because that's the God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ, God with us. Amen.